From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, friends, welcome back to Beyond Right. This is our course all about Jewish law and the values that drive the legal considerations. So they tell a story about a fellow who's interviewing for a job. This fellow is in, sitting inside a job interview, and the interviewer tells him the following. He says, look, we need someone who's responsible. And the fellow says, the interviewee says, to the interviewer, says, perfect, I'm the guy for the job. I'm the one that you want. He says, why, why, why do you say that? He's like, because at the last, at my last job, whenever something went wrong, they always said I was responsible. Okay, that was the punchline. Yeah, okay, oh, thank you, Jerry. I heard the rim shot. Oh, I love that. It's been, it's been too long. Okay, so what's the moral of the story? Tonight's class is all about responsibility. It's a very big topic and it's a very important topic. And the big questions, the big or the big question we're going to explore tonight is simply this, what is our responsibility toward each other? There there are legal angles to this question and there are ethical angles to this question and we're going to address all of them. But at the core of the question is the same, what is our responsibility toward others? Um, as we've seen in our first two lessons. So Jewish law is driven powerfully by Jewish values. There's the law, but then there's the values that drive the law. It's the ethics of Judaism that shape and mold Jewish law. The same is true when it comes to the theme of mutual responsibility. Judaism's unique take on our responsibility toward each other has an incredible impact on how Jewish law guides us in living our lives with this sense of responsibility. We'll discover tonight laws that are simply unheard of, Jewish laws that are simply unheard of in other uh, legal systems. And we'll walk away, hopefully, with a fresh perspective on life and, of course, responsibility that can greatly enhance our quality of life today. There's a lot to talk about. A lot of really great cases and a lot of really great conversation to be had. So let's begin. We're going to open up our discussion, as we often do, by looking at some case studies. So tonight we have three case studies. And these case studies get to the heart of the question about our responsibility to others and to what degree we might or might not be responsible to each other. The first case, I'm going to outline these right now. The first case study deals with a question about our responsibility toward the physical life of another. The second case study deals with a question about our responsibility toward the financial well-being of another. And the third, question, the third case study uh, focuses on the question about our responsibility toward the spiritual welfare of another person. So we have physical life, financial well-being, 
and spiritual welfare. To what degree are we, are we responsible for someone else's life, money, and spirituality? That is going to be at the core of these three case studies. As we read these cases, I want you to think about the core question. Is the individual involved in the case study, are they legally, morally, ethically required or, or encouraged to be responsible to, or take responsibility toward the interest of another party in this case? So, and, and I want to hear your thoughts after we read the case studies. So let's begin. Case study number A, or case study A, on page 76. Um, I'm going to pull this up on the screen as well, as I always do, just to make it a little bit easier. Give me a quick moment as I get the right page. Okay, here we go. Case study A. You can find it in your books once again on page 76. Let's do this. All right. I'm going to read this. It's a little bit of a longer text. All right, here we go. This is coming from the New York Times, March 21st, 2017. Joseph C. Meek Jr., A friend of Dylan S. Roof's, who spent time with him in the weeks before nine people were killed at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church here, was sentenced Tuesday to 27 months in prison for hampering and misleading the federal authorities in the aftermath of Mr. Roof's racist massacre. Okay, let me stop here for a second. You guys remember uh, the massacre, the horrific massacre in the church? Okay. Perpetrated by Dylan Roof and his friend Joseph Meek was sentenced to 27 months in prison for hampering the authorities in the aftermath of this case, uh, of the massacre. Now, miss, let's get more details. Mr. Meek, 22, pleaded guilty last April to two federal counts related to, truth, to the truthfulness of his responses to the FBI in interviews shortly after the shooting on June 17, 2015, misprision of a felony, and making a false statement to a law enforcement officer. Misprision refers to the failure to report a known crime. Okay, that was what he got imprisoned for. That's what he got, what it, that, that is what he was convicted for. So essentially, and this is very important to understand the case, to understand what we're dealing with here. Essentially, you have... Uh, Mr. Meek, who is aware of Dylan Roof's intentions, he doesn't do anything about it, and um, ultimately he ends up in prison. But here, here are the details. Let's continue on the next page. The government did not prosecute Mr. Meek for failing to disclose knowledge of Mr. Roof's plans to attack the church, although it asserted in court filings that his silence did deprive law enforcement of the opportunity to intervene. During a night of drinking and drug use about a week before the shootings, Mr. Roof told Mr. Meek that he wanted to kill black people at a historic African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston in order to start a race riot, according to FBI summaries of interviews with him. Mr. Meek was concerned enough to hide Mr. Roof's handgun after he fell asleep, but later returned it and did not report the threat to law enforcement. Certainly, defendants' failure to make an earlier report is tragic and deeply regrettable. But his failure to report was not a violation of federal criminal law, Judge Gergel wrote last week in an order that, that, that denied prosecutors' request to give Mr. Meek a longer term than recommended in sentencing guidelines. In his initial FBI interview, 
Mr. Meek denied having known of Mr. Roof's plans and said Mr. Roof had not spoken of a target for his attack, according to Assistant United States Attorney Julius N. Richardson. But in a, sec in, in a second interview, Mr. Meek admitted that he had lied, according to an FBI synopsis of the session. He also admitted that on the night of the shootings, after concluding that Mr. Roof was responsible for the attack, he told others not to contact law enforcement. Okay, so that's the story. That's the case. We have questions. I'll ask the questions soon. But first, I want to make sure re that we have a comprehension of the case. Dylan Roof committed the massacre. Horrific massacre in an African-American church. His friend, Joseph Meek, knew about the plot. How did he know this? Because, Mr. because Dylan Roof told him. He told him his intention. And he was so concerned about this plot, so concerned about, uh, about his friend uh, Roof's intentions, that he, hit his, that he hit the other guy's handgun. So that's how seriously he took it. Yet he eventually gave it back to him and uh, committed the crime. So now you have how many possibilities do we have to uh, come down on Joseph Meek? What would you say? Forget the law for a second. I mean, but I don't forget the law. Like, theoretically, what are, the, what are the potential charges or complaints against Joseph Meek? Jump in. Unmute and jump in. He's an accomplice. He's an accomplice. For what? Which piece of it? Knowing very well what the plans were. Good. And not doing anything about it. Excellent. He knew the plot. He knew the plan. And he didn't do anything about it. He didn't go to law enforcement. He didn't tell anybody about it. Excellent. What else? What, could, what else could we get Joseph Meek on? What else did he do that we could... Obstruction. Lied to authorities. Good. After the crime, after the massacre, after the horrific murders, what did he do? He basically told his friends, keep it quiet. And then he lied to authorities. He lied to the FBI. Great. I mean, not great, but that, okay, good. So we have the case. What did he get convicted of? The first issue or the second issue? Not telling authorities beforehand or hiding and obfuscating and lying to authorities afterwards? What did he, what did he get convicted on? Lying to authorities. Lying to authorities. Good. Why didn't he get convicted for the first part? For knowing about a plot and not reporting it? Because there's no law against it. Because it's not illegal. Well, and I can even make the case, as sad as it is, that it, this narrative says they were out drinking and drugging. And right. so if he'd been sitting there at dinner and there wasn't substances involved and he said this, I would find him far more culpable about not reporting it than they were all, you know, not in their mind. Excellent. And so we don't have enough information to know if Dylan Roof had made other similar comments when he was sober, then that changes the dynamics very greatly. Excellent argument, right? So one argument could be maybe he didn't take him seriously. So that's why, you know, in any specific case that we analyze, you know, we might have, uh, you know, loose ends that, uh, that point one direction or the other. But at he the core... He took him seriously enough to hide his gun. Right. That counter argument is, well, he did kind of take him seriously, right? So, but then the question is, but is it convictable? Now, here's what we know. What we know is that, as, as we read in the, uh, in the text, um, his failure to report was not a violation of federal criminal law because in federal criminal law... There is, no there is no obligation to report a crime. Now, of course, there are some instances where that is required. For example, 
a doctor, like a psychologist treating a patient, or in other situations where somebody is aware of criminal intent and, 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 and desire of someone to commit a crime, yes, there are certain instances where it is required based on certain professional relationships. However, however, in most instances, it is not required by federal law, and we'll speak about the rationale behind U.S. law, it is not a violation of U.S. federal law to withhold the information from authorities. It is not in violation of the law, which is why ultimately he did not get convicted or sentenced to additional jail time, prison time, because of the failure, his failure to disclose a plot that he at some, on some level took to be somewhat serious, serious enough to pull away the handgun. So now the question is, aside from U.S. law, because the law is the law, but at the question that, and the issues that we're exploring in this course are more about how we feel and ultimately what Judaism feels about this. Let's go back to our screen and, uh, or the books and let's take a look at the way this discussion question is phrased. Joseph Meek knew of Dylan Roof's intention to commit a massacre to some extent and chose not to report it to the authorities who, I'm going to add the word, perhaps could have prevented it. Despite that, Listen, uh, if you're following the news today, you certainly have heard the tragedy that happened in Texas with an absolutely horrific school shooting. The la latest reports as how were upwards of 20, 20 children, 20 children uh, gunned down in cold blood in a school in Texas. So, you know, when it comes to intent, and I believe I saw right before the class, I saw a headline that indicated that he had told a friend online or disclosed his intention to shoot up a school an hour before, before, the, uh, before he, he gunned down uh, these children. An 18-year-old kid who gunned down third, fourth, and fifth graders. Just absolutely horrific. Um, you know, so when we talk about you know, preventing and stopping things, the question is, you know, we, we never know what could be stopped or what cannot be stopped, but, but what we do know is that at least we give authorities a better shot, a better chance, if they're told. So get, getting back to the way the question is worded, right? So his despite that, his failure to report a planned crime in advance did not constitute a legal offense. In your opinion, again, we know what U.S. law says, but in your opinion, here's the question. Should the act of reporting a plot that involves serious crime be considered commendable, morally imperative, or a legal obligation? What would you say? What would be easier is if I had a poll, which I could create, or I could have created, but I did not. Um, but I guess we'll take hands. Again, the question is, we know that it's not a federal offense to not report a crime in most instances, a serious crime. However, do you think that to report that would be commendable, morally imperative, or in your opinion, perhaps even a legal obligation if you were in charge of declaring, declaring law and, and, and creating law? All right. So let me ask you the question. Who believes that it is commendable? Who believes that it is merely, well, no, let's start from, from, top, from, from bottom up or from strictest to, to, to easiest. Who believes that it should be an e a legal obligation to report a crime, a serious crime? Okay, a few hands are going up. Okay, who believes that it is maybe not a legal obligation but certainly morally imperative to do so? Morally imperative, okay. Who believes that it is not even morally imperative, but is commendable to do so? Okay, fine. We have different, different, uh, different opinions, three different ways of looking at it. And um, I think... It's all three. Sorry, it's all three. Okay. It's all three. 
Yeah. I have a question, Rabbi. Yes. From the point of view of the criminal code of honor, yeah. they don't want to be a snitch. What, what does Judaism say about snitching? Excellent question. I'm going to deal with that a little bit later in the class. I was going to mention, I alluded to the fact that there are, there are some pretty compelling rationales in U.S. law why this is not an obligation. One of them would be to not encourage citizens or to not turn the country into a state or into a, a place where citizens regularly turn in each other to the authorities, which breeds totalitarianism. That's, I mean, I, can't, I don't know if it breeds it, but it, it's, it's kind of pointed that you know, people turning on each other to the government, that already is, is moving in a dangerous uh, place. Judaism deals with that, as we'll see today, um, in, a, in a unique fashion. But we'll, we'll, get there, we'll get there in a little bit. But that's a great question about you know, snitching on each other. Um, but that's certainly a consideration. Any other questions or comments on this before we move to the next case study? Okay. So essentially, we had a case study number one has to do with life and death and someone else's physical well-being. And the question is, to what degree is a person, in this case, um, Mr. Meek, Joseph Meek, in what, in, to what extent is, is an individual responsible to protect the life of another who may be at risk at the hands of someone else? Okay, so that's the first case study. Second case study pertains to a question about our responsibility toward each other vis-a-vis -vis financial, financial well-being. All right, let's take a look at this one. Now, you're going to find this, I, you may find this case a little interesting, but work with me on this. Okay, case study B, this is page 78. I'll read this one as well. Rachel strolls along the street one evening. I'm not afraid to modify the case, by the way. Rachel strolls along the street one evening, passing a store that is closed for the night. Glancing through the window, she notices that the air conditioner was left on when it was supposed to be turned off, costing the store owner money. Rachel is unaware of the store owner's identity, but she may be able to receive the, the owner's contact details from the operators of nearby, st nearby stores that are still open. Again, let's make sure we understand the case. Rachel's strolling down the street. She looks into a store. She sees the air conditioner is on. How does she know this? I'm assuming it has streamers attached to the vents, and they're blowing. So she can see that it's on. Okay? Fine. So she's thinking, wow, the store is closed. The air conditioner is running. Gavalt, the owner is going to lose uh, money the whole night. You know, the store is not being used. The, 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 the power is on. The, the, the air conditioner is on. Crazy. So now, but she doesn't know who owns it. So, like, is she going to say anything or do anything or maybe just, you know, move on? But she, but there are nearby stores that are open and maybe they know the owner. So now the question is, to what degree is she responsible to try to alert the store owner about the air conditioner? Take a look at the way the question is worded in your books, in your opinion. Should the effort to alert the store owner to a costly oversight be considered Commendable, morally imperative, or a legal obligation? To what extent is Rachel on the hook to let the owner know about the air conditioning running? All right, let's take a poll. Let's start from commendable. Who believes that it is commendable? It's a nice thing. Yes. It's being a mensch. Commendable? Okay, great. Who believes that in addition to being commendable, it's a moral imperative? It's morally imperative to do so. 
Any takers on morally imperative? Who believes it's a legal obligation to go ahead and track down the owner to let them know about the air conditioning running? No takers on that one, huh? Okay, fine. Tell me. And, and maybe, you, maybe you have the. Uh... Hold on, you cut out. You cut out. We couldn't hear you. You cut out. You cut out. Still can't hear you. No, we can't hear you. You're muted. Maureen, you're muted. Yeah, I said maybe the owner's in the back room doing inventory. Right. In a case, the case where we would, we would be talking about is where, and that's why I don't, I don't like the case of the air conditioner because, I don't know, to me it's like, uh, air conditioner, it's, it's not so compelling. Imagine if you see lights on, and maybe they want the lights on, maybe they want the air conditioner, maybe there's something that's gonna get damaged by the heat if the air conditioner's off. And you don't know, you're driving yourself crazy. It's like, it's like the chocolate. Yeah, exactly, right, exactly. Maybe everything's gonna melt and, and it's gonna cause a loss. How do you, you know, you don't know what it's, you know, what's going on in the store. I, that's why I don't like the example. I have, I have my own example that I think is maybe more compelling. To me, it's more compelling. Imagine you walk by a jewelry store like a, uh, a family-owned jewelry store, you know the, uh, well, maybe you, know, you don't know the owners, but you know of the store. It's a you know, neighborhood jewelry store. And you see something weird. It, the, the shop is closed for the night. It's 9 p.m. It's definitely closed for a few hours. But whoever, was, whoever locked up at night mishandled the, the deadbolt. Instead of it being deadbolted shut, the deadbolt is turned, but it's open. You know what I mean? Like when the deadbolt is whole, actually... And now you're like, oh my gosh, the jewelry store, it's privately owned. Not that it really makes a difference, but just maybe the more empathetic, right? It's privately owned. There's all this millions, you know, who knows how much jewelry is inside the store. And the door's open. Anybody could walk in and not trigger an alarm, theoretically, because it's not locked. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So I, I, I like my, I have a personal bias. I like my example better. So now my question is like this. Is it, let's, let, now I want to ask, I want to give all three options again. Is it commendable to track down the owners and let them know that their jewelry store is unlocked? Commendable? Is it menschy? Yeah. Sure. Do you think it's morally imperative to do so? Like you have a moral obligation yeah. to do so? Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. We're getting somewhere. Air conditioner. I feel like with the air conditioner, I was like, who cares? I mean, $5, like put in the pushka. Like seriously, it's not a big deal. But like now we're dealing with jewelry. Now we're dealing with a lot of money. Um, what about a legal obligation? Would she be legally obligated to do so? I think yeah. everyone would agree, you know, not. Okay, good, perfect. Now we're gonna, so these were, this was a case, again, a modified case, my modified case, of a question that centers around the, the question, what is the extent of our responsibility toward another person's financial well-being? So the first case was about responsibility toward another's life and, and security, like physical, physical life. The second case was a question about our responsibility toward another person's financial well-being. And the third case, as we're about to see, is about our responsibility toward each other's spiritual well-being. And here we get to the Pew Research Study that came out in 2020, May 2020. I guess somebody was publishing something in May 2020. All right, back inside, let's do this. I'm gonna read this, I'm reading all these case studies. Case study number C. This is based on the Pew Research Center, Jewish Americans in 2020. Here we go. Now, hold on, before I jump in, I, I don't know about you, 
when I see statistics and percentages and numbers, I don't know. I'm, it's like I'd rather hear a story than see numbers. Personally, that's me. That's how my brain works. If, you, if the numbers like don't do it for you, that's fine. I'll try to summarize it to the best of my ability as a narrative, and then we'll proceed. Okay, so just a disclaimer about the numbers. Here we go. Overall, about a quarter of U.S. Jewish adults, 27%, do not identify with the Jewish religion. They consider themselves to be Jewish ethnically, culturally, or by family background and have a Jewish parent or were raised Jewish, but they answer a question about their current religion by describing themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, rather, as, rather than as Jewish. Among Jewish adults under 30, four in 10 describes themselves, describe themselves this way. So overall, 27% of U.S. Jewish adults downplay the Jewish piece of it, under 30, 4 in 10, 40%, describe themselves this way. Among all respondents who indicate that they have, sorry, among all respondents who indicate they have some kind of Jewish background, those who were raised Jewish by religion have the highest retention rate. 9 in 10 U.S. adults who were raised Jewish by religion still identify as Jewish today, including 76% who remain Jewish by religion and 13% who are now categorized as Jews of no religion, but at least they identify as Jewish. By comparison, three-quarters of the... I told you about the numbers, right? You're getting dizzy already. By, com by comparison, three-quarters of those raised as Jews of no religion still identify as Jewish today. Roughly half are still Jews of no religion, and about one in five are now Jewish by religion. Among those who had at least one Jewish parent, but who say they were not raised exclusively Jewish, either by religion or aside from religion, far fewer identify as Jewish today, 29%. Okay, now you have a bunch of numbers in your head. And what's the difference between Jews of no religion or Jews with a religion or not identifying as Jews? Different categories that, of course, the Pew Research Team, they use to, uh, to, to pull off these studies. A quick pie chart and... Um, or, or graph and pie chart, figure 3.1. You can look at it in your books or on the screen. So we see here U.S. Jewish identity by age, 65 and over, 84% of Jews identify as Jews by religion, 16 Jews of no religion, and as the ages decrease, the younger one is, the, the, way, the, the, the commensurate to that, or at least on some level, we're seeing this moving of the, uh, of the lines, of the bars, where less and less are identifying as Jews by religion, as opposed to Jews of no religion. Here's a pie chart, Jews by religion, 73% overall, Jews of no religion overall, 27%. Okay, so where this leaves us is with the following question. Let me, let me try to articulate this as a narrative and then ask a question. The narrative would go something like this. The challenge, one of the challenges we're, we're seeing today amongst the Jewish community, certainly in the United, in the United States of America, is the challenge of assimilation. Now, it's not a new challenge. It's been going on. Assimilation has been going on since the beginning of the Jewish people. I, and and just, just to quantify it with a little bit of numbers here. We, start, we left Egypt with 2 to 3 million people. Today, there are roughly 15 or 16 million Jews in the world. That's over 3,300 years. If you go from 3 million to 16 million in 3,300 years your population growth is pretty flat. Are you with me on this? You can go after a few generations exponentially. You start from 3 million, after like 500 years, theoretically, it could be like a billion people. So how do you get from 3 to 16 million? Number one, 
a lot of pogroms, a lot of, a lot of murder, a lot of physically killing Jews. But that's not the only, that's not the only reason. The, the other element is, of course, over the years, Jews, many Jews, assimilating and opting out and just becoming part of the larger culture and not remaining, uh, not, not continuing to identify as Jewish. So, that being said, my point is, it's not a new challenge, but it is a challenge of our times as well. In Russia, there was the same challenge back in the day. There were Jews, even Hasidic families, right? There were, there were Hasidic families, and of all the kids, how many kids remained Hasidic and, and plugged in and whatever it is? In many cases, a very small percentage, unfortunately. So what's the point? The point is simply that this is a challenge of our times, how to keep Judaism vibrant and relevant to the next generation. It's something that every, every Jew who cares about Judaism, every family, every community, every federation, every organization is thinking about and dealing with on some, on some level or another. My question to you is like this. Aside from the need to address this on an institutional level, the question is, personally, personally, is there a personal responsibility for you and I to help someone or to be there for someone spiritually and Jewishly? Is it commendable? I don't know if we have this. I don't think it's phrased like this in the book, so uh, there's no text. For, there's no question for me to pull up. But I'm asking the, the same question we asked before. Is it commendable to encourage someone to come for Shabbat dinner and to come to a Seder? Is it commendable? Is it a moral imperative? Is it a legal responsibility? What would you say? Commendable? Commendable? Okay. A moral imperative? Even higher. A moral imperative? Okay. What about a legal, a legal obligation? I guess it depends how you define a legal obligation, right? Who's coming after me if I don't, right? Okay, so this is a way to think about, it's a, we're not getting to answers right now, but it's a way to, to frame the question so that we can lead into our conversation uh, from a Jewish perspective. And the question, again, is we've, see, we've seen the question in, in triplicate. The question is now in three, three dimensions. The question is the same. And I'll just speak in first person. What is my responsibility towards someone else? What is my responsibility? And you could ask the same question about you. What's my responsibility towards someone else? Physically? Financially? Spiritually? If they're in physical danger, do I have a responsibility? If they're in financial danger, think the air conditioner and the, uh, the jewelry store, right? Am I on the hook for them? Do I, am I responsible? Think spiritually, Right? Someone's disconnected or someone hasn't had an opportunity to, uh, to, to learn or to, to, do, to, you know, to engage in a mitzvah, to celebrate a holiday. Am I responsible? Do I have a responsibility? Is it something nice? Is it a responsibility, an obligation? Where does that stand? Same question on three dimensions. Remember those old, um, remember back in the day? I remember this when I was growing up. Back in the day, we used to walk uphill both ways in the snow. No, remember those machines... Um, that had the clear plastic overlays, the projection, the project, projection machines. I had like a flatbed, little, um, you guys with me on this? Yeah, little yeah. arm, and it projected. Transparencies. transparencies. Thank you, transparencies, right. And the teacher would prepare transparency and like lay it on the top of the machine, on the, the light thing, and it would shine. And, and, and then they could put multiple layers, like if it was... Uh, 
um, a lesson in geography, right? Social studies, they could actually, or topography, you could actually put like a layer of the mountains and then the rivers and then, the, you know, you could put different, different layers of information, transparencies that could layer, uh, you know, layered up. Same thing is true with this question. There's one question with three layers. The question is, am I responsible for someone else? Physically? Financially? Spiritually? What's the extent of my responsibility? That's the question. We're going to look at it from a uniquely Jewish perspective tonight. And as you know, it's, uh, this course is all about comparing and contrasting U.S. law with Jewish law, understanding that Jewish law is driven by Jewish values. Inseparable. That's, I hope, the big idea that emerges from all these classes. Jewish law is inseparable from Jewish values. Tell me what the Jewish value is, and I'll tell you where you can find it in the law. So let's look at Jewish values vis-a-vis responsibilities. All right. Where does responsibility begin? So one of the guiding ideals in Judaism is the notion of personal and collective responsibility. We are responsible for ourselves, first and foremost, and our own actions, certainly. That's a responsibility. And at the same time, Judaism teaches that we're responsible <coughs> for the actions of each other. It's a big idea. It's a big, we are responsible for each other. Where do we see this? We see this expressed in the very first communal statement uttered by the Jewish people shortly before the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. By the way, this is a very timely conversation because as uh, you may know, Next weekend, not this weekend, but the next, the, the weekend following this weekend, Saturday night, a week from Saturday night, begins the holiday of Shavuot, which is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. It's a day in which we celebrate with the holiday. We, we hear the Ten Commandments being read from the Torah once again for the 3,334th time. Um, and traditionally, we have like a dairy, so, uh, we eat dairy foods and we have a celebration, etc. So it's, uh, it's good timing that we're speaking about this theme right before the holiday. So shortly before the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai, the Jewish people made a statement. All right, Steve, if you don't mind, please read this. I'm going to pull it up on the screen. You have it in your book as well. Please unmute, if you will, and please read page 83 from Exodus. Uh, oh, the people all responded in unison. We will do everything God has said. So the people, in response to the offer of receiving the Torah, the people said, absolutely, we are in. We are in. All right, that's the simple meaning. But the Midrash elaborates. The Midrash elaborates on this theme. Let's take a look at, you know what, Steve, if you don't mind, please read text two as well, because it is the companion text. To what you just read. When the Jewish people accepted God's rule at Mount Sinai, they did so joyfully as one. As the verse states, the people all responded in unison. Exodus 19.8. In doing so, they even committed to serving as guarantors for each other. That last line, thank you. That last line, I'm going to highlight on the screen. That last line is huge. The people responded together. 
They responded with joy in acceptance of the Torah. And that last line, they committed to serving as guarantors for each other. Which means, and this is the big idea, at Sinai we didn't just pledge our allegiance and commitment to God, we committed to each other as well. It's not that we said to God, God, we're committed to you. We did say that. But we also said, we're committed to each other. We are guarantors for sure. What does it mean to be a guarantor? Somebody give me a definition of the word guarantor. Unmute, jump in. What does it mean to be a guarantor? means if the primary party fails to meet their obligation, you will step in and fill the gap and fulfill their obligation. Excellent. Excellent. That's what a guarantor is. Right? You have a guarantor on a loan. Right? You take a loan. You take a $100,000 loan. You have a guarantor. What does it mean? It means that if you can't pay it, that guy's on the hook. Which means that a guarantor is not someone who gives a vague, half-hearted pledge to help. Yeah, if you need me, call me. That's not what a guarantor is. Yeah, a guarantor is like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mind the call. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll answer your phone calls. That's not what a guarantor is. A guarantor is someone who puts themselves on the line for someone else. A guarantor is someone who has skin in the game. They're on the line for the other party. If they can't make good, says the guarantor, it's on me. That's skin in the game, baby. That's, that's in. That's in to win it. That's the level of responsibility that we each took for each other at Mount Sinai in our tradition. We didn't just commit to God, we committed to each other. We committed to having each other's backs. We committed to be responsible for each other. And as we'll see in our discussion that unfolds right now, this commitment to each other, mutual responsibility, a guarantorship as it were, that responsibility is still in full legal force to this very day within Jewish law. But before we explore the legal parameters of our mutual pledge of guarantorship, let's work to better understand the rationale behind it. What does it mean to really be a guarantor? Not in a loan, not in the context of a loan, but the context of interpersonal you know, in, in, in a society amongst the people, what does it mean to be a guarantor for each other? After all, right, why exactly are we on the hook for each other? Uh, one, the, the, the prevalent notion of our times is live and let live. Like, why should I be on the hook for you? Why should I have skin in the game with how you live? You live your life, I'll live my life. Judaism has a very different outlook on life as captured in the following Midrash. I will tell you that this is, this is a Midrash that could spawn a thousand conversations and incredible analysis. You're going to love this. I, okay, I love this, and I hope you love this too. All right, here we go. I'm going to put, up my, put this up on the screen. Let's do this. Let's jump in. Let's ask Dr. Maxi, please read text number three from the Midrash. All Jews are mutually responsible. This can be compared to a ship where a hole has been ruptured in one of its cabins. We do not explain a cabin has ruptured. Rather, we say the entire ship is ruptured. I love this. I love the ship analogy. Look what's going on here. I love the parable. Yeah, you have a ship. 
with multiple cabins. And one of the cabins, right, becomes compromised. And now water's rushing in. So here's my question. What's compromised? A cabin or the ship? I know, I know what the answer is. Depends how the ship is built. If the cabin's isolated, because under hate, let the cabin go, right? Uh, right? Let's, uh, that's it. And, that's, and, and, and the rest is fine. But let's, let's not get too fancy with the, uh, with the engineering on the ship here. All right, your, your typical old school ship, right? It hits something. There's a breach in the cabin. And what in any one of the cabins, the next thing you know, the whole ship is breached. What's unique about the ship parable? What's unique about it? I, I want to share my thoughts on it. You know, Western society, our society, the society that we're used to, takes the perspective that we are individual ships. Every one of us is our own ship. We're our own ship that passes through the night, like a Longfellow once wrote, right? We are a ship passing through the night, individual, self-contained ships. In this worldview, in this worldview, we are essentially distinct and autonomous individuals. Sure, we will inevitably cross paths with each other. It's inevitable that my ship and your ship will likely at some point come face to face. And yes, that's exactly what the law is intended to do. The law, as we discussed already in lesson one, the law in the United States is intended to navigate, look at that, a nautical word as well, to navigate what happens when my ship and your ship are intersecting, right? I want to go this way. You want to go that way. Here's my ship. Here's you sh your ship. Okay, the law tells us who yields to whom and, and exactly how we go about that. So yes, the law will govern our interactions, the, our, intersection, our, our intersecting interactions to ensure that no one crashes into and or harms the other. But in the Western worldview, this is all the Western worldview, in the Western worldview, in U.S. society, in U.S. law, what we do on our own personal voyage, what you do on your ship, that's your business, right? You know that phrase, what happens on your ship stays on your ship? That's exactly no, you never heard that before? Yeah, because I just invented it. What happens on your ship stays on your ship. It's your ship. It's not my ship, your ship. Have a good time. Bon voyage. Enjoy life. Oh, if your ship is going to crash into my ship, now we have to have a schmooze. Now we need rules and we need laws. And, but essentially, you want to take your ship and go wherever? Go wherever. Enjoy the freedom of the high seas. Enjoy. Bon voyage. Don't forget uh, the sunscreen. That's it. Enjoy. Judaism has a radically different take. The ship, the ship, yeah, it's really big. And that ship, we're all on it. No, no, no. This is not a little poster that people put up in their homes, right, or outside their homes in 2020. We're all in this together. It's not a, it's not a tagline. It's not a tagline to make everyone feel good. Judaism says this is the absolute truth. It's the truth of our lives. The truth is we are not on our own voyage in life. We're on a collective voyage. We're all on the same ship. Yes, we may have our own cabins, but we're all in this together, really, legitimately. It's not just a tagline. We're all on a, co a common ship 
headed toward a common destination. We call that Mashiach. You can call it world peace, whatever you want, right? That we're all on this ship together. And here's the kicker. It takes all of us to get there because everyone has a different skill set. Some of us are good at at navigating um, storms. And some of us are, see, I've never really captained a ship, so I'm going to struggle now for, uh, for various roles on a ship. One person is starboard. One person is um, whatever the opposite one is. One person is looking for land. One person is perfecting their ahoy matey. One person is, um, has the parrot on their shoulder. Whatever, everyone's got their thing. One person's making the food, and one person's doing the entertainment, and one person's, uh, you know, Everyone's got their job, but we're all on the same ship headed toward a common goal. That's the Jewish perspective on life and humanity. It's a, it's a radically different perspective. Western society says, the Western perspective is, everyone's got their own boat. You have your own boat, do whatever you want. In Judaism, your own boat, we're in your own boat. We're all on a boat, we're on the same boat. Judaism has a bigger vision of what the boat is. In Western society, it's small boats. Judaism is a big boat. It's a big ship that everyone's on. Think like princess, not princess, whatever. Think of like the biggest cruise line that you can think of, right? Bigger than that. That's the Jewish perspective. So what happens in this worldview, in the Jewish worldview? Everyone's on the same ship. What happens when someone takes out a drill and starts drilling under their cabin? It affects all of us. Affects all of us. Imagine, I'll give you another example. Okay, the Midrash used the example of the ship, that's why I'm leaning hard into the ship. But I have another example, another parable. Imagine you're on a spacecraft. By the way, who knows? In not so long, maybe we'll all be on spacecrafts, right? Who knows? Um, imagine you're on a spacecraft. You're in a NASA, you're on a space mission. There's billions and billions of dollars of development and equipment, years of specialized training, and a hand-picked crew with a highly focused singular mission. You are a crew member in the spacecraft after years and billions of dollars and training and equipment all designed for one mission. Okay, imagine. So now imagine you're up in space. And instead of sticking to the mission, one of your crewmates decides to take out some tools and to chisel a hole in the spacecraft under his bed. Under his bed, it's his bed. But under his bed, he starts chiseling. Now I know what you're thinking. You can't chisel through a spacecraft. That would be a flawed design. But just imagine he had a super powerful tool that could do so. Would you consider that to be a personal matter? that you shouldn't get involved with? Like, oh, who am I to say anything? Listen, this guy is living his personal life. He's doing his thing. He can chisel where he wants to chisel. He can drill where he wants to drill. It's his personal life. Or would you say, buddy, stop it, because all of us are going to be affected by your actions, including our physical lives and the integrity of the mission. I would imagine that you would pull out the latter argument, not the former argument of live and let live. You will not say, live and let live. This guy wants to live his personal truth. He wants to live his personal life. Let him drill. He wants to drill, let him drill. You wouldn't say that. You would say that hole that this guy's trying to, to, uh, to, to, to create puts my life and the entire mission at risk. Judaism considers 
that we are all on a journey together. Yes, we may have our own cabins, and yes, we each play a specialized role, an individualized specialized role, but the well-being and the actions of one do affect the collective. This perspective is what drives Judaism's radical notion of collective responsibility. What you do matters to me, and what I do matters to you. If you're at risk, I'm at risk. If I'm at risk, you're at risk. I, thus, I in this worldview, I profoundly care about you because our destinies are intertwined. Unlike the Western view, destiny, shmestiny. You live your life, I live my life. What destinies? Judaism says, no, we're intertwined in a collective journey and a collective destiny. So therefore, whatever, what, what each of us does absolutely matters to each of us. So the difference between the Jewish perspective and the Western perspective is simply this. How big is your ship? How many people are on your ship? One person or everybody? That's the first idea vis-a-vis -vis mutual responsibility. Let me check in before we go even deeper. Let me check in. Does this make sense? The ship parable, the spacecraft parable, yes? Thumbs up? Yes? Okay, good. All right, let's go deeper. Let's go much deeper. That's basic, basic level. On a deeper level, it's not just that as shipmates, your actions affect the mission and affect me and my actions affect the mission and you, it's much more deeper. It's much, it's much deeper than that. On a deeper level, our very souls are intertwined. Now we're gonna get into some Kabbalistic, spiritual Jewish messaging. On a spiritual soul level, our core identities are actually intertwined. Therefore, what happens with you affects me organically because we're part of the same spiritual organism. Here's a Kabbalistic text. If you want to see this captured by the mystics, here is a Kabbalistic text that speaks to this truth. Let's ask um, Richard, if you don't mind. Richard, please read this text. You can find it. We're skipping text four. This is going to be text number five on page, um, what page is this? Page number 87. All right, here we go. This is from, by the way, this is from the Ramak. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. All right, please take it away. All Jews are interrelated because our souls are commingled, and we each share a part of each other's soul. This is why all Jews bear a mutual responsibility. We each possess an actual spiritual part of our fellow. As a result, when one Jew transgresses, their action causes damage to themselves and inflicts damage to the part of them that is shared by their fellow Jews. Therefore, we should all seek out each other's benefit, rejoice in each other's success, and respect our fellow Jews as we respect ourselves, because we really are one. This is the basis for the commandment to love your fellow as yourself. Thank you. So here we have the Ramak, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, this great mystic from the 1500s, who describes the interrelation between souls. And I know. He's, he gets very Jew-heavy. Jews, 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 right, fellow Jews. I get it. But he's speaking to a Jewish community and a Jewish audience, so of course he's using words that are specific. On a broader level, everyone has a soul. 
Every human being has a soul, and every soul is ultimately related and connected and coming from God Almighty. So you can expand this on a larger level or contract it to a more pointed conversation to the community that he was speaking of, but it doesn't actually make a difference. The point is the same. And the point is that souls are not only shipmates, they share the same essential DNA. And as such, listen, you know, I don't know if this is true, I don't know to what extent, but they say that twins or some people could have such a close relationship that when one of them gets hurt, the other one feels it to a certain extent. I think even in physics, I wish uh, we had Dr. Imbo. I don't know if you remember Dr. Imbo. We had a guy from Chicago, professor. He's like only a handful of people in that field of abstract or, I don't know, maybe not abstract, some sort of physics, quantum physics stuff. I believe there's something in physics when you take a particle and you separate it and you affect one, it also affects the other. The point is like this. Our souls are sharing the same DNA, spiritual DNA. Therefore, the experience of one person affects the other. If one person is, is where they need to be, the other person benefits from it. If one person is not where they need to be, then the other one is affected in a negative way. Where, what if we're not aware of it? It doesn't matter. The soul is aware of it. On a soul level, since the souls are intimately connected, the souls really are commingled. They're all one. Therefore, a soul is automatically affected by what happens with another soul. That gives us another layer of understanding of what it means to be mutually responsible. I'm responsible not just because your actions affect the voyage and affect the destination and I'm on the same ship, so if we go down, if you go down, I go down. It's much deeper than that. It's not like eventually it's going to come back to me. It's that we're, we're one. I'll tell you a great story. So we're one before my story. So because we're one, your actions affect me immediately. And mine affect you. A story. story. A story takes place with Rabbi, Rabbi Aryeh Levine. He was known as the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, the Tzaddik of Jerusalem. He passed away in 1969. So he lived relatively, you know, not that long ago. So the story goes, it's a great story. He once went with his wife to a medical clinic. And he said the following to the physician that was examining his wife. He said, Dr. My wife's foot is hurting us. My wife's foot is hurting us. When you care about someone deeply, when you really care about someone, their foot hurting hurts you. Are you with me? Not just because if their foot hurts, then they can't you know, do the errands, and then I'm going to have to do the errands, and then it affects me and my life. No, come on. That's the ship. That's the ship parable. This is much closer. If, if I love you, if I feel one with you and your foot is hurting, our foot is hurting. It's not your foot. It's our foot. You with me on this? That makes sense? It's a high level. It's a, high, it's a beautiful level. It's a high level. I don't look at your pain as disconnected from me. Your pain is my pain. If you're in pain, how can I not be in pain? Not because if you're in pain, then X, Y, and Z, and blah, 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 then eventually it's going to trickle down to me. No, you're in pain, I'm in pain. I feel that relationship. So this lends a much deeper, a much deeper understanding to the notion of, of, of mutual responsibility as, as seen as a value in Judaism. 
It's not just because we're on the same ship. And therefore, your actions could either make the journey smoother or make it take longer, and therefore it affects me. More than that, you're, irrespective of the journey, what happens with you affects me. I feel what you feel on a soul level. Maybe not consciously with, in body, but in soul. My soul feels what your soul feels. If your soul is in a good place, my soul feels that. If your soul is, God forbid, not so, my, my soul also feels that. So responsibility is in the sense that just like I feel responsible to myself to make sure I'm in a good place because I want to feel like I'm in a good place, I want to feel good, I feel the same degree of responsibility to you. I don't have to be told, you know, the other person, if they don't do this, then X, Y, and Z, and eventually it's going to trickle down and affect you negatively, so therefore you should step in and try to help them. It's much, much more direct. If they're not in a good place, I'm not in a good place. So of course I'm going to help. Just like I would help myself, I'm going to help the other. That's what it means on a deeper level, that we're all mutually responsible for each other. What do you mean to be mutually responsible? It means that I'm responsible for you. If you're struggling with something, I need to be there for you. Why? Because if you're struggling, I'm struggling. So if I need to be there for myself, I need to be there for you. Does this make sense? Yes? Sure, it's, it's aspirational, I understand. But in concept, in spiritual theory, I hope this is resonating. Okay. So if we take stock of what we've done so far, okay, if we, take, if we take a step back and we think about what we've covered so far, what we've discussed at length is the Jewish value, the Jewish value of mutual responsibility. And we've said that in Judaism, starting from Sinai, starting from our origins as a people, even before we got the Torah, we said God, we are, we are pledging our commitment to you and to each other. We are guarantors for each other because we're all on the same, because number one, we're all on the same ship, so one action affects the whole, and number two, because our souls are intimately connected. What happens with one affects the other. That is the value of mutual responsibility in Judaism. Thus, as we've seen throughout this course so far, it should come as no surprise that Jewish law follows in perfect lockstep with this value. Jewish, value, Jewish values tell us that we're responsible for each other. Jewish law tells us we are responsible for each other. It's reflected exquisitely and magnificently in Jewish law. In other words, seeing that we are a all in this together on the same ship, and be soulfully intertwined, therefore, the law, Jewish law, automatically and intuitively follows suit. Jewish law is true to the fact that we are connected and thus responsible toward each other. And this manifests itself in some pretty remarkable and, dare I say, radical legal rulings that are, frankly, inconceivable in other societies and systems of law. There are laws in Judaism that speak to this value of mutual responsibility that you would never find in the United States. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even begin. Why? Why is it so in Jewish law? Why do you have these? And I haven't shared what they are yet. We're gonna, that's the next, the last half hour of this class is taking a deep dive into these laws, radical laws. Why the law? Because of the value of mutual responsibility. So let's explore now the consequences 
of the Jewish worldview on our legal responsibility to the physical, financial, and spiritual being of each other. In other words, let's see what Judaism has to say about our three case studies. What is the responsibility toward protecting someone's life and well-being? What is the responsibility that we have toward protecting someone else's money, like in the case of uh, the air conditioner or the jewelry store? And what is the responsibility toward the spiritual well-being of our fellow Jews vis-a-vis the Pew study? All right. Make sense? We're about to jump into the law. If we are truly shipmates and crewmates working together on a collective mission that requires the unique talents of each and every one of us, if every one of us was handpicked for this mission, imagine NASA, how many people go on a spacecraft? Three, five, seven, nine. I don't know why I'm doing odd numbers. Whatever. Right? How many people go on a, on, a, on a space mission? I don't know, a handful of people. Each one of them is picked for a reason. This one can do this, and that one can do that. Judaism believes that we're all on a mission. Every human being on earth is on a mission, collectively toward a collective goal. Great. That means that we've all been handpicked. By whom? By God. It's Judaism, right? We're all, birth is God saying, I need you. I need you for a mission. I'm, remember when you were a kid and there was a pickup baseball game? Remember those pickup games? You know what a pickup game is? Not a formal game. It's a pickup game. It means all the kids are standing around in a, in, in a group and two captains are picked or appointed or self-appointed and they begin alternating and choosing a team. And all you wanted is to get chosen. <laughs> decently in the, in the number. Like, not like, uh, I'll take whoever's left. Like, that, I mean, that's okay because you're on the team, but that's like, it doesn't feel as good as being selected. Birth is God saying, soulish, get in there. I need you. It's great. It's the call to the bullpen, right? I took my kids to a baseball game last night. Who would have thought 40,000 people would show up to Philadelphia Phillies Atlanta Braves game on a Monday night? I'll tell you why they showed up. Because of Ellie's birthday. No, but it's, well, also, Ellie's birthday was Shabbos. That was his birthday gift. That's all he wanted was to go to, not all he wanted, but he wanted was to go to a baseball game. But also, it was a giveaway. They were giving away replica rings, World Series rings. I don't know if you saw the, Bra- the Braves won the World Series last year. They got these rings that are quite elaborate. In fact, the ring opens up. The real ring, not the replica. The real ring opens up, and inside is a replica of truest field of the actual baseball and it's got rubies where each home run was hit by a Braves player in the World Series in the stadium, marking in the outfield. Where the ba- very elaborate, very, uh, what's my point? So they gave away rings. Why am, I th- why am I talking about this? Oh, so yeah, in baseball, pitcher, you know, you need another pitcher in. You call the bullpen. You say, hey, bring me uh, so-and-so. Birth is God saying, at least to me, soulish, get in there. We need a soulish. We need, we need you in there. We need your unique talents. Let's do it. Everyone, Galt, get in there. Mark, let's go. We need you, buddy. Right? Let's go. Get in the game. That's what's going on. That's what birth is. That's what life is. God calling us into the game. If that's the case, think about it. If that's the case, that everybody here, everybody here is necessary as a crew member picked by God for this mission, what happens if someone's in danger? What happens if a fellow crew member's in danger? What are you going to do? Everything in your power to make sure they're okay. Are you with me on that? Because you need everybody. 
Imagine you're on a ship and there's one guy who knows, again, I'm going to reveal my uh, amaratsis, my lack of knowledge with ships. I, I would assume, depending on the ship, you need sails. If it's a sailboat, right, then you need a ship's boats. I'm using them interchangeably. You need a sail sometimes, right? A physical sail. Imagine there's one guy in your crew that knows how to work the sails, which wouldn't be me, by the way. Imagine there's one guy who knows how to work the sails, and that guy now is in danger, physical danger, and you're in the middle of the ocean. You're going to fight for that guy? You're going to be like, eh, whatever. Of course you're going to fight for the guy. How are you going to get home? How are you going to get home without the sail guy? Are you going to fight for him? Of course you're going to fight for him. You do everything in your power to make sure that he's okay? Absolutely. That's true. You understand? This is the Jewish perspective and our responsibility to the physical well-being of every person. The Jewish perspective on our responsibility to the physical well not spiritual. We'll get there soon. The physical well-being of every person is because that's a member of the crew. We need them. Someone's life is at risk. It's my responsibility to ensure that my fellow crewmate is here because I, don't, I may not know him, but if he's here, he's got a role. He's, God called him in. I, I should just stand by and watch him as he gets taken out? That's <laughs> it's crazy. It's Meshuggah. Of course not. I'm going to fight to make sure that this guy is okay. Which obviously leads to the following law. I'm just giving you a foundation for a law that we're all familiar with. But hopefully it's going to be much deeper and richer based on what we've discussed thus far. Okay, um, let's do this inside. Mark, if you're up to it, please read. Please read text 6a from the book of Leviticus. Text 6a, take it away. Do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. So what does the Torah say? Someone else is at risk. Your fellow crew member is, is, is hovering between life and death. You can't stand by. Take a look at how Maimonides describes the practical contours of this obligation. Text 6B. Mark, if you don't mind, please continue. This prohibition forbids us to refrain from intervening to save others when we see that they are in danger of death or financial loss, and we have the ability to rescue them. For example, if someone is drowning in the sea and we are able to swim out and save them, or if robbers are planning to kill someone and we are able to dissuade the plotters or protect the victim from harm. Regarding all such cases, we are commanded, do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. Thank you. I need to ask the question. It's a, it's a basic uh, question on what we just read. What are the two examples? Uh, they're literally right here, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are the two examples that Maimonides brings uh, where we are obligated to step up and step in to protect someone? What are the two examples? Somebody tell me what they are. Number one is? Number two is? Right, so number one is drowning. Number two is theft. What's the difference? What's the difference between the two? By the way, hold on one second. One second. One second. Hold on. Time out. Hold on. Number two is also murder. 
Right, hold on, let's be very clear. Case number one, example number one is drowning in the sea, and two is robbers are planning to kill someone. So also, it's also life and death. It's not just financial. It's also life and death. But what's the difference between the drowning in the sea or the robbers planning to kill? What's the difference? Property versus uh, people versus a person. What else? No, I hear the robbers are planning to kill or drowning in the sea. Both, both are affecting the person. But what's the difference? What's the difference? What somebody else is going to act upon someone. Versus? The robber is going to act upon the victim. Somebody in the sea is interacting with the world. Good. Excellent. What else? What else? Vis-a-vis. Huh? I'm thinking like intentional or unintentional. He's intentionally trying to harm someone, and the other the, a person is drowning. It's just good. happening. Good, good, all true. Good, good, good. What else? Give me more. Give me more. In the sea, is the guy currently in danger or not? He's drowning. Drowning. Yes. Is the guy with the robbers currently in danger or not? No. Plan. No. Plan. Plotting. So I mean yes, but also no. You see the difference? Rambam. I'm telling you, Maimonides' Rambam was brilliant. Rambam, Maimonides brings two examples. One example is where the danger's already unfolding. And the other one is where there's a dangerous plot being planned against someone. Maimonides says in both cases, the, Torah, the Torah's law, do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. Do not remain unmoved. Do not remain standing there. Do something applies to both. In a case where the fellow is actively drowning, and number two, in a case where there's a plot that's being cooked up. You see the difference? What does Rambam tell us? Even in a case where you know about a criminal plot, what does it sound like? Help me out here. What does it sound like? Our opening case study. Doesn't it sound like our opening case study? Mr. Meeks? Mr. Meek, yeah. Even in a situation where you know about a plot, you are obligated not, it's not just a good deed, it's not just a moral imperative, it's a Jewish law, it's biblical law, it's Torah law, that you have to do something. You have to say something. You have to do everything in your power to ensure that this plot is not put into action. Again, Maimonides brings, I'm repeating myself just for clarity, Maimonides brings two examples. Example number one, someone's God forbid drowning in the sea, jump in, save them. Number two, there's a plot being cooked up against some other party. In both cases, you need to step up. The government, you need to step up. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. You got to stop it. Why? Loi you're not allowed to stand by while someone else's life is at risk. What, what does that do with me? Live and let live. I'm not, I'm not harming them. Why is this my responsibility? That's why I spent an hour on this. 45 minutes. Because Judaism says that we are responsible for each other. We're all in the same ship. We're all in this together. Not as a cliche, but in reality. Our souls are intertwined on a deeper level, which we haven't even spoken of lately. And therefore, because of all of the above, another person's physical well-being 
is absolutely relevant to my well-being. So if they're in danger, whether because they're already in the sea, drowning, God forbid, or because someone is hatching a plot against them, God forbid, I need to do something about it. Jewish law would say, it's not just a moral imperative. It is an absolutely legal, a a legally, um, what's the language that we used before? It is a legal obligation. There you go. A legal obligation to step up, to step in, and to do something. Now, what does it mean? Does it mean necessarily going to the cops? No. It could mean speaking to your friend, Mr. Roof. Not your friend, but Meek's friend, Mr. Roof. Taking away his gun, not giving it back. Alerting the the authorities, if that's what it takes. Judaism doesn't necessarily need an intervention with the authorities. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Whatever it takes. But it's the individual's responsibility to stop the harm from happening because those victims in that church, those victims, yeah, every single one of us is responsible to make sure that they do not lose their lives. That's our, that's my responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's Mr. Meek's responsibility. Every one of us is responsible for every one of us. And if you know something, you got to do something about it. You got to do everything in your power to stop it. This is straight up halacha. It's Jewish law. It's not, it's not uh, uh, um, a, a, a value or emotional thing. It's straight up Jewish law. This is so radically different than U.S. law. U.S. law will not require anyone. I can't say anyone. In most cases, U.S. law will not require one to intervene if they hear of a plot. Why? Because I'm not doing it. U.S. law favors prosecuting um, uh, uh, crimes of commission rather than crimes of omission. Right? If, if let's say crimes of omission. Um, acts of commission versus acts of omission. Doing something criminal, that's a problem. You didn't do something. Okay. Typically in U.S. law, you're not going to get convicted for that, not doing something. That's, that's the way it is. Jewish law is different. Jewish law doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you did it or you didn't. Bottom line is you didn't take responsibility. That's a problem. You are responsible and you dropped the ball. That's a problem. As I mentioned, U.S. law is hesitant to, uh, to have people turn each other in. Well, again, Jewish law is not saying turn people in necessarily to the authorities. It's step up and, and intervene with your friend. If you can speak to him, you got to intervene. Anyway, either way, the bottom line is, the bottom line is that Jewish law, based on the Jewish value of mutual responsibility, holds us responsible to do whatever, whatever we can, whatever is needed to be done to stop the plot in its tracks in cases of physical harm. So in our case study, just to be very, very clear, um, Meek is absolutely obligated in Jewish law to do whatever it takes to stop Roof. And if he doesn't, he's actually punishable by Jewish law. Okay, that's case study number one. Case study number two. Again, we're just tying up all the loose ends over here. To address our second case study, that was regarding our responsibility toward another person's financial well-being. Okay, let's look back at text 6a. I'm going to pull this up on the screen. 
and let's read, let's reread a line. I want to highlight a line that may be, I'm sorry, 6b, that may have gotten lost in the shuffle. Okay? Take a look at the opening of Maimonides. It's not, I know it's on two pages here. This prohibition forbids us to refrain from intervening to save others when we see that they are in danger of death or financial loss. You see that line? We have to intervene when someone else is in danger of death or financial loss. Just like we're not allowed to stand by the blood of our fellow, we're not allowed to stand by the financial loss of our fellow. That is the way that Jewish law canonizes this. Jewish law unequivocally declares that we are responsible to protect the financial resources, the material resources of our fellow human beings. And yes, this follows the very same values that we established earlier. Back to the ship analogy. If we're on a shared mission, it is absolutely in my best interest, in my every interest, to ensure that you have everything that you need to complete your mission. If you need rope, back to the ship and the sail. I'm obsessed with, ship, with sails tonight. If you are the sail person, that doesn't sound right. If you're not the sails person, but the sail person on the ship, yeah? And you need ropes to tie the sails or to untie the sails. And you don't have your rope because, I don't know, the rope blew into the sea. That's a problem. Not only for you, the sail guy, but for me, the other guy on the same ship. You need to have your resources to get your job done. I need to have my resources, which means that I'm not just responsible to make sure that you're a member of the team and your life is secure, but I need to also be responsible to make sure that your resources are secure, that you have what you need to be healthy, active, and a contributor to this larger process, to this larger goal. And yes, and yes, that means that I take responsibility with every part of my being to make sure that you have what you need to complete your mission. If you're lacking resources, well, that ain't good for you or for me. And certainly, if we share souls, if we share a, a, a spiritual DNA, then your pain is my pain. Your lack is my lack. Your missing resources is my res- missing resources. These values, again, the values shape the law. These values shape Jewish law in very practical ways, as we see in the Torah's laws regarding lost property. Take a look at this. This is incredible. Take a look at the following. This is going to be text 7. Okay? I'll read this. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. You shall not witness your fellow's ox or sheep straying and ignore them. Rather, you must return them to your fellow. So must you do with anything lost by your fellow. So if you see your fellow's property um, wandering away in the case of an animal or lost in any other case, you have an obligation, I have an obligation, anyone has an obligation to return it to the owner. Again, why? Because just like their life is important, their life matters, their stuff matters to them and therefore to me and therefore to the mission. Their stuff matters. Take a look at how the Talmud understands this. There was a line here, there's a word here, where the Torah specifies, if you see your ox, your fellow's ox or sheep straying, don't ignore them. And then the Torah says, by the way, this is for anything lost 
So much you do with anything lost by your fellow. But look at how the Talmud understands this. Ravatat. The verse states, so must you do with anything belonging to your fellow. The mention of the word anything comes to include preventing damage to someone else's property. And I need to stop right here and comment, which is why I'm reading this. It's not just once it's lost to try to return it to the owner, but prevent, uh, prevention, preventing damage or loss to someone else's property. That's also an obligation. Rabbi Hananya said to Rava, there's an earlier teaching that supports your ruling. Listen to this. Here's a practical case. If you observe flood water advancing toward your fellow's field, you must erect a barrier to protect the field. Unbelievable. It's not my field. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't make the flood. I didn't make the field. It's not my field. It's not my flood. It's not my monkey. It's not my circus. I'm out. What do you want from me? It's not, it's not me. I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> I'm not God. I'm not the field owner. I'm nothing. I've been garnished. I'm a private individual. My name is Ari Solish and I live somewhere else. What do I have to do with this guy's field? Halakha says, you're there? Do something about it. It's a flood. Someone else's, God's flood. Someone else's field. It doesn't matter. You're responsible. You see the theme tonight? You're responsible. By the way, I don't mean you. I mean me. I'm responsible. For someone else's stuff. Not only when it's already lost, but before it's lost. To prevent the damage from happening in the first place. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. You know how you have these, um, in California, you have um, the wildfires? Almost every year. It's getting worse and worse now. Right? It's for another topic. But you have these wildfires. The question is, I mean, look, not, not that any one person can stop a, can stop a fire with their bare hands. It's, it, it takes crews sometimes months to, 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 to get control of a fire, a, a big fire. But there's a sense of responsibility, right? Just because it's not my house, just because it's not my property doesn't mean I don't have responsibility. If I'm around, if I can help, I have responsibility, 100%. I'm absolutely responsible to make sure that I do whatever I can to help someone else out so that they don't experience a loss. Why? Because we're all in this together. Because I care about your stuff. You care about my stuff. That's a Jewish value. And it's canonized in Jewish law to the point that it is my legal obligation to step up and step in. Take a look at how the Talmud quantifies this. The Talmud helps quantify to what extent is this. There's a responsibility, but to what extent? How far does it go? Take a look at text number nine. Take a look at text number nine. If you find your own lost object, back to lost objects, alongside your father's lost object, so now you have two, uh, two, two items to retrieve, yours and your father's, but you can only take one, let's say. You can only, you only have a bag big enough for one. So retrieving your personal asset takes precedence. If you encounter your own lost object together with your teachers, again, your personal asset takes precedence. Your, your assets take precedence over those of anyone else. From where is this law derived? Rabbi Yehuda said, Rabbi Yehuda quoted Rav, the verse states so that there should be no impoverished among you. You must avoid, become, you must avoid becoming impoverished so your assets take precedence over the assets of anyone else. However, listen to this, Rabbi Yehuda quoted a warning issued by Rav. People who are strict in their application of this principle will eventually meet the impoverished state they, they are seeking to avoid, which tells us something fascinating. According to Jewish law, 
a tale of three steps. You ready? I'm going to break it down hopefully simply. Three steps. Step one, if you see impending damage to someone else's property, you have to do something. Step two, but not if it costs you money. Step three, do it anyway, even if it costs you money. You with me on this? Step one, intervene. Step two is accept if it costs you money. Step three is, oh, sorry, but you're not obligated if it costs you money. Step three, do it anyway. Do it anyway. Be a mensch. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. And we see this in the Code of Jewish Law. Here's from the Alter Rebbe's Code of Jewish Law. He writes the following, If we encounter lost items of insignificant value to the point that if they were our own, we would not bother to collect them and take them home, we are nevertheless obligated to make the necessary effort to restore them to their owner. The rationale is that we have the right to relinquish our possessions if their value is outweighed by the physical burden they impose. So you can make your own calculation for your own stuff. However, we have no right to unilaterally relinquish someone else's ownership over their possessions. The Torah does not allow us to spare any effort, even if the effort is great and the value of the item is minimal. Which means, as follows. If someone's property is in danger, we have a responsibility to do everything in our power to stop the damage from happening or to return the, dam- the, the lost item to our fellow. Every effort, no effort should be spared. However, what about expenses? You don't have to go out of pocket, but you should. You should. That's, that's how we eat one, two, three. So let's, now we have all this information. Let's practically apply it to case study B. Rachel walks by a store. She sees the air conditioner blowing. I I didn't like this example, and maybe you didn't either, but I'll give my example also. But first, Rachel, air conditioner is blowing. It's going to cost a lot of, it's going to cost some money. Uh, But I don't know the owner, but there are other shops I could ask. What should she do? uh, The owner of the shop stands to lose money. Based on what we just said, based on Jewish values, should she do something or should she just turn a blind eye and walk away? What's the right thing to do? What's the legal thing to do? She should. She should do something. Now, you might argue, what, I'm supposed to drive by Manhattan and every building that has lights on, I should try to find the owner. Right? In Manhattan, imagine Manhattan. The whole city is lit up. Uh, did you mean to leave on your light in the 40th floor in the building, the Chrysler building? Because I noticed, I can see the copy machine, and I'm assuming that may, maybe you didn't want it on, and I know it's costing you money. You know, that would be silly, right? But my example, that's why I like my example better, which is the jewelry store. Right, the jewelry store, it's like a local jewelry store. It's deadbolted, but somebody messed up, and now it's on the outside, the deadbolt, it's open, and who knows, by the next morning, all, all the stuff, all the inventory could be gone, could be wiped out. It's like a flood is coming. It's like a flood, and here's a field, right? Theft, and here's an unlocked jewelry store with hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of merchandise inside. What do you do? Time out, before I ask you what you do, do you need to do something based on Jewish law? 100%. Absolutely, it's not a question. You have to do something. Now, do you, have to, do you have to spend money? Not necessarily. Should you? Yes. Do you have to? No. But do you have to do whatever you can other than spending money on it? Absolutely. Why? Because we have a re- responsibility toward each other. Let's conclude with the third case study. The third case study pertained to spiritual Spirit, uh, um, spiritual responsibility. The Pew study told us that as time goes on, as time passes here in the United States, less and fewer and fewer 
uh, young adults or Jewish adults are identifying as Jewish, etc. Okay, we know, we know the studies, we've all heard the, um, you know, the fears out there. The bottom line is, bottom line is, I could say, well, that's what federations are for, that's what the Chabad is for, that's what the synagogue is for, sure. But what about a personal responsibility? Do we have a personal responsibility? My friends, I'd like to say that based on our conversation tonight about us being resp- literally at Sinai, taking responsibility toward each other, for each other, the idea of being on the same boat, being on the same spacecraft together, the idea is that our souls are intertwined, certainly leads to the conclusion that when it comes to spiritual matters, Jewish matters, we are also responsible for each other. In fact, the Torah says as much. Take a look at text number text number 12 from Leviticus. It says, You shall surely critique your fellow and you will not share in their guilt. What does it mean? What does it mean to critique your fellow? It doesn't mean to criticize. Let's be very careful here. It doesn't mean to criticize and to point fingers. Oh, you're not good. You're not. Come on. That's, that never works. That's not effective. There's no point. That's, that's, uh, that's bitter and angry. Don't, don't go murder on the other person. Don't, don't go bitter herbs on them. What, do you, what's, what does it mean to critique? It means with love and concern and respect to help guide someone. I mean, think about how you would educate anyone with gentleness and with love and, and, and care and concern and respect. It's like, hey, you know, here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking. So what does it mean to critique someone? It doesn't mean to critique means to encourage in a positive way. It means that you know someone and you know maybe they don't have somewhere to go on a Friday night. And you're like, hey, why don't you come over? Let's have a Friday night dinner together. That's a beautiful thing. That means that you care not only about your own Friday night dinner, but you care about your friend or your family members. You care about the other guy. You're going to a class. Let's say there's this great class on, I don't know, the intersection of Jewish law and ethics. Let's just say Theoretically, let's say it's called Beyond Right, and let's say it's on Zoom Tuesday nights and in person Thursday afternoons. Let's just say theoretically. And you love the class, and you're thinking, wow, I know someone who would love some engaging Torah study. Great. Invite them. By the way, I I don't mean to, I'm I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, sort of. I mean, not really, but it's not about this class necessarily. It's not about more people to this class. But it's about sharing. It's about taking responsibility in the sense that you're looking for the well-being of someone else. So if you have something that you love, if you have something that's meaningful, spiritually, Jewishly meaningful to you, share it with someone else. Give that gift to someone else. Just like we look out for each other physically and financially. Judaism obligates us to look out for each other spiritually and Jewishly as well. Holiday is coming up. Shavuot. Invite someone to come to synagogue, hear the Ten Commandments, or stay up all night learning Torah, or whatever it is. Mezuzah, invite someone to a mezuzah party or uh, to a kosher restaurant for, uh, you know, for, for dinner. Something Jewish, something spiritual that enlivens the soul. That's not just a good deed. In Judaism, it's actually a responsibility. It's a responsibility. Take a look at text 13. Maimonides guides us as to how we should speak to each other. Only with love. One should not say... Second. No, sorry. Text 14. 
When we critique others, whether regarding an interpersonal issue or a religious matter, it should be done in private. We must speak patiently and gently, clarifying that we are motivated solely by, the welfare, by their welfare and desire that they merit reward in the world to come. Okay, listen, if, if that's not your desire for nothing about the world to come, it's also okay. But think about them. Think about their, their best interests. When you're trying to encourage someone, think about this from a space of love, not from a space of judgment or preaching or anything like that. Space of love. I have something that's meaningful for me. I want to share it. I want to share it with you. Why? Because I love you. Because I care about you. That's what it means to really be responsible. You care about your fellow crewmates. Imagine you're on a ship for years together, and you happen to have packed this great snack. Unbelievable. It's like a little pouch, a foil, I picture a foil pouch. You mix a little water in it. Fantastic. It's filling. It's nutritious. It's wonderful. And you have a lot of packs. Plenty. You're never going to run out. You'll, you have an infinite amount of packs or, uh, you know, uh, why wouldn't you share it with someone? It's good. It's healthy. It's, it's invigorating. Share it. You know what they say? My kids always say this. Sharing is caring. Sharing is caring, baby. That's how we do it. You, you have something, you have a treasure? Share it. Take responsibility for the other. Share it with the other. Give the gift of love. Give the gift of life. Give the gift of inspiration to someone else. That's what it means to be responsible for each other. And I just want to conclude this conversation by... So yes, this speaks to, pew, to the Pew study. What does it mean for the Pew? Yeah, okay. So, so younger people aren't identifying so much Jewishly. Okay, so what do we do? Throw our hands up in the air? Invite someone over for Shabbos. Invite someone over for a meal. Invite someone over for, uh, for a fun Jewish experience or for a meaningful Jewish experience. Get involved. Don't wait for any federations or any, it's not about federation. Don't wait for any organization to do it. The Torah obligates us as individuals. If we know something, share it. The previous Rebbe once said, everyone should be a teacher. Even if the only thing you know is the Aleph of the Aleph bed, teach an Aleph to someone who doesn't know. In other words, you can teach whatever you know. You don't have to have all the knowledge. Who has all the knowledge? No one has all the knowledge. Don't wait until you have all the knowledge. It's never gonna happen. You know Aleph, teach Aleph. You know Shabbos, share Shabbos. Whatever you have, share it. Take responsibility. This notion of shared responsibility Jewishly is reflected so beautifully in Jewish law. I'm gonna give you just a few quick thoughts and then we're gonna close out today's class. Number one. Typically, as of course you know, you can't just take someone's stuff. There's a word for that. It's called theft. You can't just take some. But you know the exception? There's one exception. When it comes to a mitzvah. When it comes to a mitzvah item. Like, for example, you need to listen to the chauffeur. You don't have a chauffeur. It's Rosh Hashanah. You don't have a chauffeur. But somebody else has. But they're not around. But the chauffeur is sitting there. Are you allowed to use it? Or is it theft? Are you allowed to use a, a chauffeur that, that, that doesn't belong to you? Halacha says you're allowed to use it. You know why? Because it's not theft. You know why? Because they have a responsibility to share the mitzvah with you. They have an obligation, you with me? They have an obligation, spiritual obligation, to share a mitzvah. Therefore, if anyway they're obligated to share the mitzvah, so I, I don't need to ask. Because I'm sure... They wanted to share the mitzvah because that's they're obligated to do so. You can't say the same with money, by the way. You can't say, well, you're responsible to 
provide my financial well-being so I can take your money. That doesn't work because that's not the responsibility. As we explained before, the responsibility, the responsibility that we have for financial um, well-being is that we, we don't sit by while someone else loses their resources. We don't have an obligation in all cases to feed them resources. When it comes to a mitzvah, though, the obligation is to help assist someone in doing the mitzvah, which means that the one who has the chauffeur is actually obligated to give it to me to use as a chauffeur for, for the mitzvah. Therefore, I can take it. Now, of course, I can't damage it. I can't degrade it. I mean, degrade I can't, like, you know, if it's uh, something that with use becomes devalued. I have to be very gentle with it, obviously. But I can use it. One more example. You're, you're going to love this, and we'll close out the class with this. You'll love this example. And you can't keep it, right? No, 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 no. You can't keep it. No, uh, you can only, yeah, for sure, that, right. So you can't, you can't ruin it. You can't degrade it. You can't, you know, devalue it. You can't keep it, but you can use it for a mitzvah. Why? Because it's not, here's the key. It's not just you who needs to do the mitzvah. They need to see to it that you do the mitzvah. That's the, that's the twist. Final point. You'll love this. There's certain mitzvot that you don't have to do yourself. Someone else can do it on your behalf. For example, chauffeur. If you're in synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, you don't have to blow the chauffeur. What, um, everyone pulls out their horns and starts blowing the horn? That's not, I mean, that would be cool, I guess, but that's not what happens. There's one guy who blows the chauffeur, and everyone else says amen to the blessing and hears it. And that person who blows the chauffeur fulfills the obligation on behalf of everyone else by them, by everyone having the awareness that that's what's going on. Another example, classic, Kiddush. Kiddush, Friday night. Many places, one person makes the Kiddush, says the Kiddush, on the couple, on the glass of wine or grape juice. Everyone says Amen, and maybe everyone drinks a little bit or not, whatever, but, but everyone gets covered by that, guys. Here's the question. Let's say you already blew the chauffeur or made Kiddush, and then you go home, not home, because it's, it's easier that way. Uh, then you bump into somebody or, or whatever, and, and, and that person didn't hear the chauffeur yet. Are you allowed to cover them for the show? Are you allowed to do the chauffeur again for them? The reason why it's a question is because you're only allowed to cover someone for a mitzvah if you have an obligation to do it. But you don't have an obligation where you already did it. Are you with me on what I just said? If you already blew the chauffeur in Rosh Hashanah, okay, that you don't have that obligation anymore. So then how can you cover someone else's obligation if you don't have the obligation? The answer is, you do blow the chauffeur for them because you still have an obligation, not to yourself, but to them. That's the point. The fact that someone else didn't hear the chauffeur yet, that's your obligation. Your, mit, your chauffeur is diminished by the fact that not everyone heard chauffeur. In other words, you did the mitzvah, but it's not a complete mitzvah so long as someone else didn't hear it also because we're responsible for each other. Back in the days before COVID, we used to go walk Rosh Hashanah to the hospitals in Midtown. We used to ask the hospitals in advance for the list of Jewish patients in the hospital, and we would go around. I've taken my kids for years. We go to the hospitals, we walk 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, Rosh Hashanah afternoon, we're going to sleep? No. People didn't hear the chauffeur. They can't. They're in a hospital. We go in. I will tell you, it's not to toot my own horn. Sorry. That was a chauffeur joke. Um, but this is, um, all right, you guys with me. 
So you have to blow the shofar quietly when you're in a hospital. The last thing you want to do is frighten the patients. That's not something you want. Woo, like, whoa, like, uh, uh, you're in a hospital. So you got you to do it, like, carefully and quietly and quickly, usually, because, you know, p- things are happening at a, at a quick pace over there. So it's, it's a unique challenge. But I've blown the shofar on, on any given Rosh Hashanah, I don't know, a dozen times or more, every time with a blessing, every time helping someone else fulfill the mitzvah. But why? I already did it. Because I'm responsible to someone else. There's a mutual responsibility. And thus, as long as I, as long as someone else hasn't done it, my mitzvah is not perfectly complete. I know we're going past the time, but I just want to share this with you. This last line. With regard, hold on. The reason for this law, the Ron says, the reason for this law, why you can still help someone else fulfill the mitzvah even after you've done it, is that all Jews are responsible for each other in mitzvah-related matters. Consequently, if my fellow hasn't yet fulfilled their mitzvah obligation, I haven't completely fulfilled my, mitzvah, my own obligation either. If someone else hasn't done it, then my fulfillment is also incomplete. This is the Ran from the, from the 14, 14th century, from the 1300s. This notion of mutual responsibility goes back, goes back many, many centuries. This is one of the core values of Judaism, and it's reflected magnificently in Jewish law. My friends, as we conclude tonight's class, I want to conclude it on a note of Fabrengen, because Fabrengen means like a, like a heart-to-heart talk. Today we talked about the value of mutual responsibility, the way Judaism looks at it, and the way that's reflected in the law. We're all on a ship together. We're all shipmates, crewmates, and a shared mission. Our souls are intertwined. And thus, what happens with you matters to me. And so I need to take responsibility to ensure that your life is secure, that your finances are secure, and that your spiritual well-being is as robust as it can be. That's my responsibility. This is what my teacher the Lubavitcher Rebbe emphasized again and again and again. This is why Chabad houses exist everywhere across the globe. You know what they say. Wherever you are, there's always two things. Chabad and Coca-Cola in that order. There's some places that Coca-Cola isn't even, but Chabad is. Right? Whether it's Thailand or, I mean, my gosh, I'm trying to think of exotic places. The Congo or Vietnam or Johannesburg, or Atlanta, or Los Angeles, or New York, or Chicago. I mean, these are big cities. Or Buenos Aires. No matter where you go in the world, if there's a Jew living there, there's probably Chabad there. Because the Rebbe's vision was that we actually put into practice these values. If we're really responsible for each other, then let's put our money where our mouth is, or let's put our feet on the ground where our ambitions are, where our values are. And that means if Somebody does not have the opportunity, for whatever reason, somebody doesn't have the opportunity to have a community, to have a mitzvah, to have a Torah class, that we take that action to be responsible for each other. It's not just for Chabad rabbis and Rebbitsons. It's for everybody. The Rebbe made this call for everybody. Everybody. It's not the Rebbe's call exclusively. The Rebbe emphasized it, but it's a Jewish call, as we saw tonight. The call is to care about someone, to literally, literally care about someone's physical well-being, financial well-being, and spiritual being to the point of taking responsibility and taking action. That's Judaism in a nutshell. And that's very unique. 
And that's beyond right. It's beyond right. It's Jewish. Thank you for joining me tonight for Beyond Right Lesson 3. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was inspiring. And I hope you'll take the values to heart and help someone else out. All right. Thank you very much for joining tonight. Any questions or comments as we close out tonight's class? Yes, Ray. Don't forget to unmute. Thank you. Don't, hold on one second, Ray. Don't forget to unmute. Hit that button. I just requested it for you. You got it. Careful. Yes, you got it. All right. So it, it borders on, is, is it your business? Is my business your business? If, if my neighbor thinks I shouldn't drive anymore, can he come and take my car? But I want my car there to look like somebody's home. Very good. Now you're asking the tough questions. How do we practically balance good? I was trying to avoid the practical question. I'm kidding. Now you're asking a good question. How do you balance, right? How do you balance the value and the obligation to look out for the well-being of the other without micromanaging their life? That's your question. Without overstepping the bounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. That's a so great question. Have a right to do that? That's a great question. What about a doctor? What about a doctor who examines, an eye doctor examines a patient and notices that the patient probably shouldn't be driving? Should they report the patient to the police? Similar to your question, right, about the neighbor. I would hope the neighbor wouldn't, like, go that far. But what about a doctor who feels maybe responsibility? Well, depending on the neighbor, right? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Look, we have to balance responsibility with nosiness. And the question is, where is it coming from? And is it coming from a good place or from a bossy place? Is it coming from an altruistic place or maybe a little too altruistic? You know, there are also boundaries in Judaism. We didn't go through all the checks and balances, but certainly, certainly, we would be encouraged to also respect the, uh, to some extent, the decisions of the other, while at the same time protecting, trying to protect someone against harm. First thing would be having a conversation. <clears throat> and then, hopefully, being a mensch after that conversation. But again, it's really hard to say in any specific case, you know, or any mm. generally specific case, what Jewish law might say about that without really diving deep into a given scenario, which... We're not going to do right now, but the point is we would have to balance that, but it's an excellent question, and it's a real question. Yes, yes. Mom. Question, I put it up on the chat. So um, this, and I know it's very complicated, and you probably have a whole course on this, is the DNR. We're supposed to, we're obligated to preserve life, to do everything to preserve a life, and that's why we do, D, uh, well, that's why we don't do typically DNRs. But there are certain circumstances that. Yeah, involve. it's great. It's a great question. Medical ethics is a is a just an immensely complex topic, and you're right. There is no one size fits all answer regarding DNR and. Um, do not resuscitate and also do not DNI, do not intubate, right? There's no, there's no one answer for that. And even in the specific cases, there's a variance of opinion amongst the great, great halachic codifiers and modern, modern experts in Jewish law, ranging from you should to you shouldn't to it depends. We have discussed this 
um, in specific scenarios, I'll just tell you something in general, as I know you know, halacha never speaks in generalities. There's no such thing as a general halacha, general Jewish law. Especially with medical ethics, there is no general, it, everything is a specific case by case. A rav will never say, well, here's a general psak, a general ruling. It's always, give me the scenario, who's the person, what's the situation, what's the medic, what are the doctors saying? Everything is very, very precise, and then you can make an informed halachic decision, at least an expert on Jewish law can make a, an informed decision. Of course, there are general guidelines, but you can't actually, those are not actually actionable from the general guidelines because that will, that will be determined by the, the specifics. So yes, there's a general um, value of preserving life. At the same time, there's also a value of mitigating or minimizing suffering. So now you have to balance those two, those two values. That's where the complexity of Jewish law comes in. And we have discussed this, and even when we discussed it, it was about specific case studies which may be very different than a similar case study that's different. So it's a great question, but it's a bigger topic, and right. I'm not in it right now, so anything that I say would not be accurate anyway. In general, it says about when you, when you, uh, when you study Torah, um, to speak out of an area that, you're directly, that you've been directly studying like in the immediate moment is always a little bit dangerous because you might be forgetting something or mis, uh, misremembering, and therefore, it's, it's always important to go back to the sources before um, commenting on that. So um, I'm not able to comment right now, but it's a great question. No, I, I, I prefaced my question with, I know that there's a whole course right. on this. But I just wanted to bring it up as a, as a topic. Okay. Good. Any questions or comments? Questions, comments? Okay. Great to see everyone. Want to wish everybody Lila Tov. And don't forget... We are family or shipmates or souls intertwined. Take care, everybody. Be well and uh, share the love. Take care, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me, and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.